Welcome to In Defense of Humanity. My name is Ostrizaz Miller. Khalid Johnson is here as well. And today we're joined by Iggy Perillo. Please introduce yourself, Iggy. Hi, I'm Iggy Perillo. I'm stoked to be here. Excellent. And can you tell us a bit about yourself and a little bit about what we're going to start discussing today? Absolutely. I started a business called WSL Leadership Coaching, which actually stands for Work, Sport, Life, Leadership Coaching. And I help teams and individuals, I help teams work together better, and I help individuals lead with excellence. And so I'm excited to talk with you all about some of the tricky parts about maybe leading yourself well, and maybe also work in some thoughts about masterminds and the groups and things that I facilitate for unique populations. Absolutely. So just off the rip, uh, can you please explain some of those things to an audience member who may have never heard of any of these? Absolutely. Uh, which is, you're not alone. I would have to say, number one, I tell people like, yeah, I facilitate masterminds. And they're like, cool, cool. Then I'm like, you don't know what one is. They're like, I have no idea. I'm like, okay, perfect. A mastermind is a shared coaching environment where everyone in a group is like, the groups are really cultivated and specific. And so everyone in the group is at times a coach within that group and at times a coachee in that group. And so you get this cohort, like a board of directors or a team that's helping support you in your learning and growth. And so I spend a lot of time making sure I get the right people in those groups and they meet mm -hmm. together over time. So if people are working on something, they can follow up and follow up and follow up with this crew of people. And yeah, they were just in that experience. I think I've found that people get a ton out of it in terms of whatever their goals are, whatever they're working on. Or if they're stuck on something, problem solving is huge once you have seven or eight other minds helping you resolve that problem or that issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I can definitely just immediately see how that could be useful in a business setting, but also in a community setting. Um, I think of small towns where mm. almost ubiquitously people think the same. And then you have newcomers who decide mm -hmm. to go to like a city council meeting. Mm -hmm. And then they have new ideas, you know, how's about since this isn't technically illegal, can we get some support for this group? And they go like, well, no members of that group live here. And you're like, well, I live here. And I found out that there are other people who've lived here for 20 years. You just neglect them. You pretend as though they don't exist. You don't invite them to these things. So their voice can't be heard. I think of like um, middle management to middle There's management. There's a cat meowing right now. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. All are welcome. Uh, but I think of like middle management mm -hmm. trying to discuss things with upper management and then not being heard fully or the council. Uh, how can this apply to our lives mm -hmm. just interacting with other people who think differently? Oh, yeah. I specifically have worked with groups lately that are trying to make changes within their organization. So I'll have a bunch of people that are really focused on, I specifically had a mastermind that was all people engaged in anti-racism work recently. And they worked for different organizations just all over the place and had different experiences, but they're all wrestling with how to bring this, how to make their organization more anti-racist through the work that they were doing as individuals. So they're operating on like a personal level, but also organizational level simultaneously. And it was fascinating. Like even though one of them was talking about a choir, another was talking about a sports league, another was talking about just their lived experience at this nonprofit they worked for. And so um, I think each of those people, even though they were 
kind of in a very different space and within a different type of community, that same shared goal helped them give each other amazing tidbits and advice. And someone would come up with something like, oh, I'm struggling with the wording of our mission statement, you know, or something like that. Someone else could would chime in with like, oh, here's what we did. Here's what we have. Here's, you know, they just got so many great ideas bouncing off each other. So I think mm -hmm. like bringing together people that are doing similar types of work or have similar goals is also another amazing way that masterminds support folks. Because I think then you just get so many different ideas and so many different experiences that you don't have to go spend your life Googling. Like, how do I, you know, help my city council not be terrible? You know, whatever it is, you can talk to people right there who are like, oh, I had a friend recently tell me about how her neighborhood association was like really annoying because they were just against everything, but never stood for anything. Mm -hmm. So she's like, but what are we here for? You know, but having that shared support, I think, yeah, I've just seen it really boost people's confidence, if nothing else, and give people the courage to try things. It might be out of, you know, a little awkward or a little weird for them. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that's how it sort of applies on a more broad level. Like you don't have to necessarily be like oh, some of the groups I facilitate are really specific. Like if you're a triathlete, you're probably going to want to join the triathlete group and not another group. You know, that's yes. pretty tailored in, but some are thematic. Like, for example, anti-racism work. Or I have another one that's like parenting, which is super broad. Like that could be a lot of different things, but... Probably if you're not a parent, you're not going to join that group too. But it can pertain to a lot of different aspects of people's life on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So those are those are aspects of this mastermind technique, this group. I've heard of it a little bit before, you know, seeing, seeing things on YouTube. Every now and again, you'll hear someone use a term that other people use effectively. And they're also using it effectively, but they're their main goal is not to help me, but to sell me something. <laughs> you, Jeff, other people who we've discussed with have courses. We have no problem with it. Of course, you know, we all have to make money somehow. We do a podcast where we could just talk to people without recording it, but mm -hmm. we choose to record it to monetize it. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but I do at times get worried. And I want to know your thoughts on this. Whenever seeing people who've learn these techniques and they start to super monetize them like six hundred dollars mm -hmm. um oh, six thousand yeah oh, they're yes. out there masterminds like are th often they're often in like a business entrepreneurial space so you're like oh hey i'm going to teach you business strategy i'm going to give you a million dollar business in half a year you're going to pay me 10k right now we're going to make it happen and you're like i don't have 10k to pay you right now mm -hmm. like i think i would say that is very common in the mastermind space so there are like especially the business entrepreneurship ones where like oh we're gonna vet your idea with the, you know we're gonna shark tank you over the next six months and you're gonna have a billion dollar business you know next year or whatever it is those can be so spendy mm -hmm. mine not so much because i'm dealing with people and their lives and not i'm not selling mm -hmm. you a business model absolutely absolutely and i don't i don't personally know but I'm sure those guys, you know, trying to help people through the entrepreneurial spirit wouldn't be so good in uh, an anti-racist discussion or they might they, be. Yeah, they have Fast their, talking. Uh... <laughs> right. I think I'm sure they have their skills. Well, they have their areas of strength, I would say, you know, like they're probably definitely playing to their strengths. Other things, maybe not so much, mm -hmm. but hard saying. So considering um, the kind of variety of um, things that you like address and deal with within um, this kind of work, um, what's been the most challenging? I think having people 
just working with in masterminds or I, you know, other with groups or individually or things, having people come and talk to me about how they're in a situation that's terrible in some way and they know they need to do something, but they're not sure how to have that hard conversation. Usually it boils down to a conversation they know they need to have with someone and they're hesitant. They think this relationship is going to get wrecked. Like, uh, but this thing they're doing, this behavior is not cool or what's happening is not working, but they hold back on dealing. So seeing people wrestle with this is really common, but also like really hard to watch because you, you get to know people and you just see them struggle in their internally, you know, all churning because they can't deal with the, they don't know how or they can't, or they're hesitant or they're afraid to deal with the thing that is also bad for them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'm currently wrapping my brain around all of these things coming together and sort of, I guess, separating. Cause as soon as you leave the course or begin to apply these externally, like with people around the people in the, in the events are real people, but then you start to apply. I know whenever you learn something like in a language class or in a computer class, you're like, I'm going to apply this as soon as I get home, as soon as I get somewhere. And then it doesn't work or like this person's an outlier and they're like, I don't like what you're doing. Um, how, how do we deal with those situations? I'm sure you teach ways to sort of adjust and think on the fly, but let's say someone's like a legalist instead of a pragmatist. And they're like, I have to stick exactly to, <laughs> this isn't a think tank. I have to stick exactly to what I'm saying. Sure. Well, the beauty of masterminds groups are that they meet over time. So you have each person has time to go practice or do their homework or do their little thing, like a piece of it or try it out and then come back and be like, oh my gosh, this was amazing. But people do come back and they're like, wow, that fell so flat. I think everything's terrible now. Like that did not work at all. And so part of the beauty of a mastermind is that it does meet like the ones I facilitate are at least are not at least they're exactly about three months long. Mm -hmm. So you have time in that, especially if you're working on uh, something that's challenging in like a work environment, for example, uh, you have time to try out pieces of it or, or like, Oh yeah, I went to them, but they're like, Oh, that wasn't really the right person or that didn't work out or my approach got shot down, whatever it is. So you have time to practice and come back and come back. So that's one part. I think the other part is I spend a lot of time, talking with people not only about like specific tactics like oh for this conversation with this person that you need to have here's let's make a plan for that but also the idea of like well what are the actual underlying skills or what are the principles you're trying to get across because yeah exactly like you were saying next time it might be a slightly different person or a slightly different situation or like i think i believe in giving people these skills and tools that they can apply forever in the future versus yeah here do this one thing check okay next thing great check you know like I'd rather people feel like they're great. They're building their communication skills or building their ability to emotionally connect with people or building their ability to have those hard conversations, for example, as opposed to just building their ability to call me every time they're struggling. Like mm. that's not, I would rather train people to live awesome lives than train myself to be a crutch in someone's so-so life. Okay. Okay. So I like that promoting independent thought. Oh yeah. Um, does the work ever, at a certain point, like feel like mediation. Does it ever verge mm. on that? Uh, <laughs> very specifically, yes. Like, I there's some organizations I partner with that are like, "Can you mediate this conflict?" Like, they flat out ask me to help mediate for them, and I come back with the same approach. Though I'm like, "Yes," and 
it's not i'm not i don't really have a horse in the game in some ways you know it's like the organization mm-hmm. struggling with a a member of their organization for example or something like that and so i do like fundamentally operate in this mediating space but i think my approach is still to give them the tools to keep communicating once i you know clock out at the end of the hour you know whatever it is like i'd rather start communication and start you know building some bridges but give them the skills to keep those bridges Mm. built or to revisit or to decide like actually we need to fire you or whatever it is you know like trying to give them some structure for this is how we're going to move forward great and again Mm. like i'd rather they are able to like take that on and and people are new at it right that doesn't mean like one hour like oh you're an amazing you know conflict resolver in this situation like that's not necessarily always the case but without if I walk away and pe- I'm like, oh, they're going to call me again tomorrow when they have this conversation again, like that's not a success in my book. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, I think something that both you and Jeff do that I really like is sometimes we have these thoughts like Jeff mentioned, he goes like, if there's an asshole at work, you know, and the way to deal with them is not to sort of add fire to fire like fire doesn't beat fire you can burn a swath in a forest to stop the fire from approaching but you've also just destroyed a lot of forest in hopes that it won't go further but then if the other person decides to leave you think i've won but now the very same issue that you hated you you hate this guy because he's mean or this or this individual in the workplace you have just become them in order to defeat them and even though you're like hey i'm not this person everyone else who saw what you were doing all the all the negativity and the toxic energy you did and now even though it wasn't directed towards any of your other cohort or any other employees co-workers you have now assumed the identity of the person who you so vehemently oppose Absolutely. How do we, how do we avoid this? Mm. I think, I mean, here's your like really snooty reference of the day. I think there's a line of Nietzsche that like Mm -hmm. you could only Mm -hmm. so long into the abyss before the abyss is also looking into you. Right. And so that idea of like, the more we spend engaging with negativity, like some of that rubs off on us. It's kind of one take on what he's saying. I think there's Like if you don't have a really firm understanding of your personal values and your personal vision for, or your personal goals or your, like that's some of it, but without understanding your personal values and your shared goals, you're really just going to end up emulating the worst behavior that's like permissible because that's going to get you to your goals faster. So if your goals are shared, like you can't only serve your own goals. And if your values are super clear, your personal like underlying factors, like your actual bottom lines, not just like the aspirational ones. I feel like people are like, oh yeah, I'm all about like honesty, except for white lies because I need to tell my auntie that her cheesecake is the best or else she'll punch me. You know, like I'll get excommunicated from the family, whatever it is. I'm like, okay, you see, value honesty except for white lies. Maybe that's a harmless one. I don't know. But are you really valuing honesty then? Or the people that are like, I'm all about integrity except for this one thing where I have no integrity. But you know, the rest of the time I have tons of integrity, except for when I'm like, playing poker with my buddies I like smoke them all the time and like deal from the bottom of the deck and you're like is that really integrity if you know there's if it's situational right so understanding your actual values for you that are actually true all the time not just the aspirational fun like terms that people like to whip around when they think they want to say that these values matter you know 
Mm-hmm. So understanding those shared goals, I think, help you from falling into that abyss that, yeah, I liked your metaphor of like the burn, the fire line. So the fire coming toward you. And if you burn out enough ahead of it, it'll go out. But the reality is you've just burned a ton of forest for sure. That's a beautiful metaphor. Thank you. Uh, also, I've said also at least 16 times and someone's definitely going oh. to come into our DMs and say, you did it again. <laughs> you used one word way too much. Oh, but I haven't noticed it. It's been beautiful from this end. So. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think of, what do I think of? I've lost it. This this usually doesn't happen, but sometimes I've thrown you off. I've thrown you off talking about your also's and how they're okay. <laughs> no, no. So you, you mentioned Nietzsche there, who we, who we definitely love on the podcast. We talk about Nietzsche, Kierkegaard all the time. And I think of, you know, through this nihilism, you know, people people always use like, oh, I'm just a nihilist, ex nihilo, out of nothing. So I, I just don't care about things. And people convince themselves, like you, the old adage that we said whenever we were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And then they start to internalize things. And then they, they move forward thinking that I can be fine without this one thing or I can be fine under these circumstances and they actually get in the circumstance and they're, they're saying I'm fine, but they're, they're like sort of motif or how they're acting is completely atypical to what someone would think of as fine. For sure. I think a good model for this is, I don't know if you were familiar with William Glasser's five basic needs. Is that familiar? Yeah. Awesome. So like, to me, that makes a lot more sense. Like I also have a undergraduate degree in philosophy. So I've spent some time with the nihilists and the philosophers mm. and all the people and like, great Nietzsche, whatever, long syllables, whatever. This page is one paragraph. It's one sentence. We don't care. <laughs> you know, like you're like, okay, bros, like dial it back and like say something mm. we can understand. But I think the idea that like if people have basic needs and we meet them through our behavior in either well-adapted ways or maladapted ways makes a lot more sense to me and how I see people in the world. And when I'm talking with people about how they interact with each other, people will come to me and say, I can't believe they made this choice. I can't believe this person is doing this thing. I can't believe that the, you know, why are they like that? And you're like, well, they're making choices that they think make their, that will meet their basic needs in the most, the best way. Or maybe they're Mm -hmm. not necessarily thoughtful, but they're trying to meet their needs. So it's your job as a frustrated one to, step back and look at, well, what are, what needs are they trying to make to meet, which can be confusing. You might have to have a conversation that could be super mm-hmm. awkward, but also how can we meet these needs in a better way that serves our shared relationship shares our, or our shared goals or, you know, kind of that we're sharing the space together. I think the, the needless to say that, you know, like, oh, I, I don't need other people or whatever are, uh, what is like the other great line? Like they've, they've met tons of people. It's like the classic sort of psychiatrist comment that they've met tons of people who said they have no friends, but they've yet to meet Mm. someone who says they don't want any friends, right? Like, so the people that are like, oh, I don't need people. I don't want people. I don't, you know, I think they're, and there are people out there that, you know, we're a unique, you know, Mm -hmm. mix of Mm -hmm. people, but we're also, I'm more on the brain A Brown side of that. We're hardwired for connection and social connection is part of that. And so maybe they're there, which doesn't mean you have to like everyone or get along, blah, blah, blah. Like that's sort of the childish side of it. But to say you need no human connection is a pretty strong pathology, mm-hmm. fundamentally. Definitely. So, so like, to like 
obviously, you know, you have a pretty strong grip on a lot of stuff, right? To be able to like go between a lot of these different groups and um, different kinds of uh, relationships, right? Um, do you ever find yourself having to like apply a lot of this stuff in your personal life? Um, I hope it's not too personal of a question, um, but you know, like finding the balance of I can do it at work, obviously, but you know, in personal relationships, it becomes, there's like a disconnect, I guess. Yeah. Uh, fundamentally, yes, I'm still human is like the answer. And the more specific answer is like just this past week, I remember, what was I talking to someone about? I don't know. I'm sure, I think more when I often, when I talk to other people about these topics, I see it more in myself where I'm like, oh yeah, I need to do the exact same thing. You know, the giving other people the advice that we need ourselves kind of thing sometimes. Like this past week, I definitely felt um, like there was a conversation I needed to have with someone. Like I felt that sense of cognitive dissonance, like, oh, who I am is not in alignment with who I think I am, right? So our, my actions are not lining up right now with my idea of what my actions should be. And so, uh, I mean, maybe I just have more words to articulate what that is. I'm like, I can say cognitive dissonance and I know what that means for myself. Mm -hmm. Yay. Mm -hmm. But in reality, that still means I feel like awkward and discomfortable and like I need to do something, but yet I want to talk to someone about what I should say because I don't want it to come off as too weird. And like, I I wouldn't say this happens every day or every five minutes because I'd like to think I'm slightly advanced enough to like think through it before I get fall into the abyss. But I do, yeah. Like I get to this spot where I'm like, Ugh, I'm not doing what I think I need to be doing right now. And I need to figure out my next steps. I think I've just know where the ladders are to climb out of the hole faster, but that doesn't mean I don't fall in the hole for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah you've you've said uh abyss obviously talking about this this if you go deeper in an a you go deeper in an attempt to leave it but through it if uh, let, let me explain that better so it's like the forest is a dark place there is a way out but there's also a path that leads through the forest and out to the other side so most people would say, I will go on the path with the assumption that the path is made in, in uh, sort of good faith, a good faith argument that the path is made in the most logical way to get me out of the forest. No one ever assumes, what if the path just leads me deeper into the forest? You know, people go like, well, this, someone told me this worked for them. They told me this in good faith, in confidence. I am going to assume that this can work for everyone. Thus, I'm going to try it without any further thought. How do we avoid this? I know I've asked you, how do we avoid this? Quite a bit, but I, I feel right. like. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. I would say I see more often in my practice, people who don't realize they're even on the path. They're like, oh, this is just mm -hmm. how we do it. This is how things happen here. Like organizational culture is like, well, this is just how our organization functions. This is just what it is mm. to be a part of this thing, obviously. Like and they don't even question the path they're on, I think, is just how I see that metaphor play out. And then someone shows up and was like, hey, why are you even on that path? Like, hey, here's another, op op you know, mm. here's a fork in the road that you didn't even see. And, and that is where conflict happens, right? When people are like, oh, this is just how we do it. You know, we're this type of organization, we blah, blah, blah. I'm this type of person, blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever it is, I think people are 
sort of get into, fall into these habits of being like either internally or like culturally within a group. And then when someone questions it, I think there can be a lot of, I mean, people respond to that sort of question in different ways, right? It can be challenging, it can be fearful, it can be, you know, whatever it is, The or it can be inspiring and like open opportunities. So I think the hope is that by asking these questions or by pointing out that there are other opportunities, it is like the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. Like the fixed mindset is like, we're on this path, this is just how it is, versus, mm-hmm. or this is just how we do it, there's a path, whatever, this is just, there's no, you know, the blinders are on so hard that they can't even see those other options. Versus like a more that more open growth mindset to be open to possibilities or to literally to be open that failure is an opportunity too. Mm-hmm. when I think people are attached to their path or their way. Absolutely. I don't know. Yeah. In the moment, it's tricky, though, right? Because we want to feel yeah. like comfortable. We want to feel like, oh, but this is what I know. This is the known. This is how we always have done it or, you know, whatever is comfortable for us. Mm-hmm. It's tough. Mm-hmm. I think there's, and that's, I think, speaks to this idea of like a reckoning, right? When you get to the point where you realize that this path is taking you the wrong way, like, or that you're on a path or that your path is like lined with good intentions or whatever that is actually Mm -hmm. not super helpful or functional or really meeting your needs. And so that like what people do in that point of reckoning, once once they realize their path isn't taking them to the right, the way they want to go or that there are other options, it would be even better. I think that's those points where if you're, with organizationally, like it takes organizational leadership to point that out. And I'd say personally, even like I advocate for like personal leadership as a concept, like how are you leading your life? How are you intentionally thinking about it, but also enacting the things that you want to do, enacting the path you want to take? And what do you do when you come to a fork in the road or when you realize, you know, you're headed the wrong way? There's this great proverb that I love, which is like, no matter how far you go down the wrong road, no matter, <laughs> I'll try and say it like logically, no matter how far you go down the wrong path, turn back mm-hmm. what do you but you have to realize you're on the wrong path first right yes yes okay okay that's definitely interesting to think about as well no matter how far you go down the wrong path turn back I suppose because making any ground on the wrong path is making none at all or negative yeah yeah that reminds me a bit i don't know I always think to philosophy, this probably happens to you as well, or even like mythology, think of African myths, which are always so proverbial with the lack of proverbs. I guess that is sort of a problematic phrase. I should stop thinking so deeply. Uh, But the lotus eaters, because you said feeling Mm. comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, one thing that we, we harp on so much that people get comfortable. And I'm not you know, I'm not like one of those Forex coaches who are like, you got to be uncomfortable. You got to be struggling so that you make all the money you can. Mm. I I don't know if I want to go down that path, but I can say comfort does lead to being complicit, just like a lotus eater. You know, there's no reason to move up. I'll get a raise. I'll get more petals and then I'll be, I'll still be fine. I'll live my life. Uh, I'll retire and 25 years with a small pension and then i'll be able to live the same exact life that i lived during my work just without the work but now i've worked so long that i get bored at any opportunity to not do something so now i start building things and now i've just taken up another job but without any profit from being rewarded by other people not just the monetary or having that sort of camaraderie in the workplace. Mm. 
I like that you said that discomfort breeds people being complicit. I think that like, I think that I love that phrase. That once people are, yeah, just hanging out eating the lotus is right. Like they, that part of the Odyssey, like he's there. It's sort of like a blank in the Odyssey that's filled in by like a pair, you know, like two sentences. Like then he hung out with the lotus eaters. And it's like ten years later, mm-hmm. he's on the mm-hmm. road again. You know, like Odysseus just totally bogs down for ten years, and we don't even know what. You know, I don't know if it was ten years, but it seemed like a huge gap in there, right? Where he's just eating lotus, whatever, hanging out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people do that, and I'd say they're comfortable. Comfort breeds like these habits that we don't question too. And I think to introspect in terms of like what your habits are. And that's where I think people, it's like the rock and the shoe, right? If you change a tiny habit, you can change, make a lot of, a huge difference. And like a huge veering can happen over time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's just like navigating like one degree different. And once you go a hundred miles in a one degree different, you end up really far away from where yes. we were pointed before. So these tiny changes can have a big impact. And I think that idea of, I mean, like, right, we're hedonists or are we, like, pro-social? Like, mm-hmm. are we here just to, like, please ourselves and, like, to make our own lives full of pleasure and joy and whatever? Or are we pursuing, like, more eudaimonic pleasures, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is the eudaimonic truth where we're mm-hmm. here to, like, struggle and by through challenge we learn more about yes. ourselves and people around us and, like, engage in, the, in a way that's more meaningful. And the Greeks, like, we're on this, like, ancient Greek tangent. Like, the idea that, like, virtue, virtue was ancestors it's not even about your life and hubris is your like hubris was a um that you are a dishonored ancestors like that the people coming after you are going to look back at you and be like what a chump like that's what hubris mm-hmm. really means it's not mm-hmm. even in the moment but the same with virtue that like you're not doing this for you here now you're doing this for you know generations down the road like this very much a longer mindset and i think i've definitely done this sort of exercise with people like talking about I mean, it's classically the kind of cheesy one. It's like, what would you want to have say on your tombstone? You know, like, like what would you want to have people say at your eulogy? Like, how do you want people to reflect back who you are and what you did for your life? But the other version is like, well, who do you want to be? Who, how do you want to be remembered, right? I think is kind of the forward-looking part. Like, how do you want people to be, enge- like, engaged with your memory? What kind of impact do you want to have on the world around you? Mm-hmm. If it is like, hey, they really threw great parties? Like, cool? Like, I don't know. Or like, oh, they really accumulated a lot of, fun stuff like okay but i think the more meaningfully like the pursuing actual virtue is an impact that's positive on the people around you and positive enough that your ancestors can recognize uh not your ancestors your future generations can recognize mm-hmm. that you had mm-hmm. a positive impact absolutely we're, we're definitely going to have to cover this we're going to a commercial break but i want us to cover eudaimonia i want us to cover virtue ethics because i feel like your your work can lead into these as well, as well as like the veneration of what we would be. We would be ancestors uh, to our descendants um, through this hubris, which I would like you to explain more for our guests. And if you would, uh, eudaimonia as well, because I absolutely, I definitely love it. This just reminds me of undergraduate philosophy. This is this is good stuff. Is that what you studied too, or did, was that just a class or part of your? Studies? Um, it was it was part. So I was interdisciplinary studies. So mm-hmm. I had philosophy. Uh, I was deciding between business and another pathway. I comparative literature was it, mm-hmm. and then history. Mm-hmm. So it was a human rights, a degree in human rights. Awesome. Yeah. So great. So we'll take it to break now, and we'll see you folks in a second. 
Welcome back from the ad break. We were discussing a few philosophical terms, ancient Greek terms. Can you can you deconstruct those for us? <laughs> I, I can try. It's been a minute, but these are the ones that actually come up really often for me. But I don't often have like the discussions of like ancient Greek with people, but I'm mm -hmm. not against it. But eudaimonia does come up pretty regularly. And that's the idea that excellence isn't achievement, but excellence is striving, right? So like the true definition of excellence is that you're striving for more. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a state of striving, you're in a state of eudaimonia, which means you've done it. Check. It's amazing mm -hmm. versus achievement. So like if I get a first place or an A or, you know, whatever it is, however, this much money, what, however you gauge achievement, uh, that's more of like sort of an external or... Um, I don't know. I guess that is like sort of hedonistic view of like what achievement is can kind of be roped into that a little bit. So that's like eudaimonia, that mm -hmm. striving is the purpose. And this is like, if you boil it down through a couple thousand years and like cheesy, like poster art, this is where like the journey is the destination, right? Like that's mm. the cheesy poster art version of this. But uh, I would say it gets a little, you lose a little bit in that much translation. So striving, if you're in a state okay. of striving, you're doing it right. Okay. Okay. So this helps that, that definition, um, that, that explanation definitely helps a lot. I'm certain, uh, because anytime I think of it and I've tried to explain things on the podcast, I realize it doesn't, it, it only drives more questions sometimes. Cause I'd be like eudaimonia and I would just get into etymology. You good or blissful daemon spirit good spirit through works and then people would be like okay that's fine but then it'd be 15 minutes later and they'd be like he's still talking about this <laughs> what is it really come on <laughs> yeah it is uh i'm glad you're familiar with eudaimonia but i think it really captures like yeah a sense of an excellent life is a eudaimonic life in my perspective mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so then i have to ask since since we're already on uh, sort of we're getting close to virtue ethics because we mentioned that as well with the the virtuous life uh, I think Aristotle would say a vir a virtuous life is a, a life of moderation but not to the same level as being a moderate because sometimes we use terms in in 2020 and we're like I'm this or yeah you're a liberal I'm a classical liberal we're the same and it's like hold up hold up <laughs> firstly you assume that i was a liberal secondly i know exactly what that means mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. with with virtue i ask uh leisure right time that we are allowed to do what makes us feel happy that is not the same thing that we do in order to sustain ourselves so for me i would say gymnastics in the classical sense reading exercise uh, arithmetic and then others would say oh that's you're doing more work whenever you should be relaxing you know vegging out and i would say but this is my leisure this is leisure to this truest sense you're mm -hmm. not supposed to go into a state of the abyss you're supposed to still develop yourself while not doing something that is required for you to live if yeah. you garden for fun then you're then you're gardening for fun even if you're a farmer, this is not work because that's not required for your survival. Yeah, that makes me think of this huge 
debate around screen time for kids, right? There's this huge, like, parenting debacle where, like, ah, don't let your kids look at screens. And other people are like, it's okay to let your kid look at a screen. It's fine. But it, there's different ways we consume media, right? There's very passive where we're just sitting there hitting that 12-hour miniseries. I'm going to watch all the episodes in a row and just let it hit me. Mm-hmm. There's also much more interactive ways. Like, in screens are sort of this default for either in some ways. Like, the people... Uh, I think this one, I want to say it was Turkle. She was talking about how if you're, she didn't say Minecraft, but if your kid is like creating something online, for mm-hmm. example, Minecraft or other types of things where you're building, you're interacting, there's actually social interaction through lots of different types of games. That's really different than passively consuming. You're actively engaging. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing can be like someone might be like, oh, like I could never watch that, you know, like people who watch documentaries for fun, you know, it's kind of like another slide of this, right? And someone's, it's like, why do you act like you're in school? Like, you don't have to watch mm-hmm. a documentary. You don't have to mm-hmm. learn about blah, blah, anything. You could be watching a show or a movie or, you know, something more um, frivolous, fun, you know, like whatever, just a different type of content. Yeah. But I think people like to engage with that. Similarly, I think we've both probably met people who like to debate and like to discuss. And that just gets them so amped up and excited. And other people are like, I just like, whoa, that's too much. Like, that is no fun. Or, you know, that mm-hmm. doesn't seem engaging to me or interesting. So, yeah, that that's a great... I mean, I like your spin on how it could be the same thing. The thing for you, the classic gymnastics could be very fun and engaging and like relaxing and amazing. Or they could just feel like work or school or, you know, whatever, a negative to other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't. It's it's a bit lost to me now, but I do remember reading the commodification of brown skin and how in order. So so it it. It seemed a bit convoluted when first reading it uh, like three years ago, but in reading it, it was so if you have dark skin and it gets darker, then you have proven that you have to work a menial job outside in order to make enough money so that you can live. But if you start with pale skin and then you come back from your vacation, and you are darker, mm. and you have proved that you have worked hard enough and efficiently enough to make enough money to go to w- one of these places where people are dark uh, by design because of their socioeconomic status. Dark due to leisure, right? Yes, and mm. you're you you're exactly right. You are you have become dark because you were able to uh, just lay there and do absolutely nothing, come back to work. Once you get pale again, oh, you need sun. You should go on vacation. And mm. then the cycle completes as a way to satiate you uh, from your your work, uh, you know, eight-hour, 12-hour workday based in the Industrial Revolution so that we can get you to work more efficiently. We give you, as Khalid and I have said in probably the last five episodes, we give you a little so you don't take a lot. You You go on your vacation, you become dark, so you don't quit. And then we're going to pay you probably tops 70% of what you're worth so that we can still keep you as human capital. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I don't have much more to add to that. I think that's just a great, very clear concept for how that works in terms of what's positive or negative. And it's like your context around the same thing, like dark Mm -hmm. skin tone darkening due to sun exposure. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. I mean, yeah. There was like this, like I think it was ancient Chinese culture. They grew their fingernails really long to prove that they didn't have to do manual labor 
Oh. And so if you had short fingernails, you were like obviously some like worker drone because you had to use your hands. Because like once your nails get long enough, I don't know, mm-hmm. like I can't grow my nails at all out or else I break them on everything as a yeah, wreck. Yeah. Oh, I guess I'm not leisure enough. You know, like it was a sign of leisure, which was a sign mm-hmm. of class. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. in that culture, it was very much about class that your fingernail length pertained to your class status. And this is like ancient, you know, this is mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. for sure. But it's interesting the yeah, that the idea that we need to see but I think in your case, you were talking about with skin tone, mm-hmm. it's like a visual representation of your status in a way of like, mm-hmm. oh, you're going to work for us and get more pale because you're a committed worker and we own you and you know, like you don't even get out to see the sun. Mm-hmm. And yet we're going to give you enough vacation, leisure, sunbeam time so you come back and we can own that piece of you also. Yes. Yeah. And I think whenever I see like, pageants and and on television people choosing to get tanning it's Mm -hmm. sort of lost just like systemic racism the meaning is lost they know that they think it looks good because their mothers and and uh, fathers and other people around have told them that it looks good and then people told them that but they don't necessarily remember the origin of why they want to get tanned they just know that it, it looks good because society has imposed that tanning looks good so they mm-hmm. continue to do it yet somehow whenever one of these individuals who chooses to get tanned looks at a person who is naturally darker they go like oh you're you're getting kind of dark you mm. you've been in the sun a lot and it's like you know you know it's mm. negative for you know you're you're hitting it on the head it's negative for someone who's naturally dark because it shows that they they or even if they're choosing to get darker for the same exact reason because they work in the same place, it looks as though they have to work in the fields. And mm-hmm. that is why they're darker. Because that is the assumption, you know, it's it's an innate bias from the society that promotes tanning. I mean, it's bias and it's like commodification, right? You know, mm-hmm. you can commodify uh, darker skin um, as long as it's on the right people. Um, but you know, that also goes back to this idea about like leisure, right? And people get get to experience leisure or people at the top and so Mm -hmm. you know obviously classism remains a problem um and it's a problem across uh every race right you know it's not just uh it's not just like centric to white people you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. but um as we said with uh paco yesterday well i guess in the previous podcast Mm um you know like like they use uh, race is a means to separate um, classes, right? To mm-hmm. further push uh, class divides. Yeah. But uh, the flip side is that, like rednecks are technically the red sunburned neck from the white people working in the fields, right? Mm-hmm. So like old school rednecks are like the same thing, but that's somehow celebrated. And we're like, we're gonna throw a party and have redneck pride and whip out our Confederate flag and pull our trucks in the mud and you know, like there's like a culture around that that's mm-hmm. that there's a lot of pride around like a lot of investment of energy around in a way that's weird (laughs) as a non-redneck white person Mm -hmm. saying what is going on there like what i don't like i understand wanting to have pride in uh being working outdoors like i actually worked outdoors for many years not Mm -hmm. in an agricultural setting but i was like really tan for probably 10 years because i literally worked outdoors all the time Mm -hmm. and that's a different set of than being associating with this cultural niche that's like yeah. oh wait i have pride in this thing or 
on the flip side being cultural judgy about people what am i trying to say i guess you know at the end of the day we don't treat brown people and white people the same shocking you know revelation mm -hmm. here this mm -hmm. far into this podcast right but it's like oh yeah why like huh systemic racism maybe that's a thing oh white centering is that a thing oh who knew like just looking mm -hmm. at these cultural mm -hmm. phenomena is very i don't know makes it very stark i think oh yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, but I like go ahead um, you know still thinking about class right um when you look at like a lot of rednecks the goal is for prosperity right you're working mm -hmm. uh and hoping that you'll you know you don't want to be like a corporate ceo or anything but you, you want you want to live comfortably and you're hoping that your work you know in whatever small town area you know will grant you access to a comfortable life um and that's the american dream right and that dream is obviously racially coded because it's always been presented as specific to white people so you know there can be pride in and uh and being a redneck and pride in this uh uh, Confederate heritage or deep mm -hmm. Southern racist heritage, right? Because it's like, you know, this is what America was initially um, supposed to stand for, you know? And so the belief is that the dream uh, is still accessible to them and should not be accessible to others, you know? And it's, it's, it's always a weird kind of thought process because it's like a lot of the struggles that uh, rednecks have are struggles that poor blacks or poor hispanics or poor you know these other poor minority groups are experiencing as well but because of the deep coded deep seated racism you know presented in america's uh in america's foundations you know it's a, it's a, it's a further divide we can't all we can't afford to focus on class as like our unifying issue because we're still fighting over you're darker than i am yeah I'll take it one step further to a, a multidimensional uh, way of thinking, not, not scientifically, of course, but to the aspect of having gender politics included in this. So I, I think specifically I worked at a warehouse, but in the office, and there was an individual who was, who, he was openly gay, but I overheard some other people go like, it's so great that we have, we'll say Darnell here, because, you know, he, he's like black and gay. So it's like, we get to have both uh, ways of thinking, like we can ask him questions and he can answer it on both ways. And I was like, hold up, hold. Firstly, he does not speak for all gay people or all black people. Secondly, am I hearing that you're just gonna go to him instead of you're going to run down a sample and ask him be like, well, you know, he's okay with this. So that means everyone else is okay with it. And because he's gay, he, he has, he goes one up because he's doubly oppressed. And I was like, absolutely. That is an intersectional reality of oppression. However, right. Going back to mastermind in the workplace, this this could be a kid to harass but if he's not okay with this uh you know typically he, he would be okay with this but i think how do we navigate a situation in which we're not necessarily the aggressor and the person who is receiving these these questions the the berating does not take offense to it right i know 
like I can, I have, it's not a privilege, but I have the dismay of being able to feel offense for most of the things that they would ask him. You know, I'd be like, oh, but I'm a, I'm a black man who's sitting right here. You couldn't have asked me, but you want the guy who's intersectional to throw in. And, and what do gay people think about that? How do gay people feel about black rights in this aspect? And it's like, come on, take a sample. There, there are more people. He doesn't like get, and he doesn't want to be the, the herald of black gay thought in the office space. How do we deal with people who are obviously in intersectional positions whenever other people use them as a, a token questionnaire they're like the super token right because yes. they're like token extra the intersectional token of mm -hmm. so many possibilities man that's a great question i don't i don't feel like i have a great answer i think the i suspect speaking to the white people in the room white people in the listening space out there uh, you need to do a little better, FYI, that's step one. And I think the other part is there's, if something makes you unsure or uncomfortable, or it seems like a weird question, like this is like the classic premise, right? Someone's like, Hey, I have this kind of weird question for you. And then they like mm. unload some like really ridiculous, like, what do all black people think about blah, blah, blah. And you're like, Whoa, like you already knew that was kind of a weird question, right? Like there's some mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sense somewhere that this is at least not you know, depending on your workplace, maybe just not the normal conversation, whatever it is, like not normally how things roll. And so if you were already thinking, this is kind of weird, I'm curious. And curiosity, I think fundamentally is great. I'm all pro curiosity, like, yeah, have questions, like learn, grow, blah, blah, blah. On the flip side, if, yeah, I mean, you spoke really eloquently to like ha asking the, the one token person that you know, the classic, my one black friend or my one gay mm -hmm. friend or my mm -hmm. one Asian friend, you know, like whatever it is. Like finding your token friend, like and I got to put the friends in the air quotes because are they really your friend? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the to answer your question and be the speaker for everything is not okay. Like in a sense of you're not going to get great sample size. One, not a great sample, and also you're gonna if you already have a relationship with this person, how willing are they? Whatever your relationship is, how willing are they to tell you? Mm. what you want to hear versus what mm -hmm. they want to tell you you know like there's i think yes and if you're in a workplace and there's a power dynamic and they're your mm -hmm. you're their boss mm -hmm. and you know oh this gets layered up a hundred thousand times but i think the there is this problem that we call white fragility for example that mm -hmm. where people don't want to they don't know what to do they're not sure how to say the right thing white people i'm speaking to and they it comes off as this very guarded and couched language like hey i know this is weird and i'm not sure if you want to talk blah 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 you know like i'm a which is really all code for saying i'm going to dump some emotional labor on you right now how mm -hmm. like i hope you enjoy it and so when people i think are in that space i think it's uh that would be a great space for people to take a step back and try to understand like attempt some empathy is really like the lamest mm -hmm. but like most realistic answer i have like how is it going to feel to someone to be asked i think i feel like i've been in the workplace where there's a super nosy coworker who always wants to know about your dating life and i'm like i don't want to talk about it with you not only are you like super nosy and like in my business but like you're like the gossip queen of the whole 
operation. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about my dating life. And but yet they're this is like their MO, right? And this is not exactly comparable, but to be and that's where I felt like I'm kind of uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about it. Stop harassing me. You know, like whatever. I can push them back because I have the space to do that, you know, in some situations. But if that was my boss, like, would I feel the same way? If that was someone who I'm like, oh, I have to answer this. Like, is this part of my job performance review? Is this part of what's expected of me? I think the, yeah, giving people that space to, like, draw those boundaries is really important. And I think the, the power dynamic that comes with job hierarchy is intermingled with the power dynamic that comes with race dynamics and gender dynamics and all these different things that overlap. Like all those dynamics really put people in a position to feeling like they have to answer, they have to mm -hmm. represent, they have mm -hmm. to speak up. And mm. it's fundamentally unfair and unrealistic mm. and like on the science side, like not good data. Like you're not getting Ooh. a great answer for all mm. of these reasons at the same time. Especially when things like Google exist, you know, and you have like limitless resources at your hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I would love it if more people just answered like, hey, why don't you Google that? <laughs> like, I think that's a fine answer. Yeah. But in the moment, right? Well, and I think in those moments, that's the time for the other, like the anti-racist white people to actually do something. You know, mm -hmm. I would say this is the moment when like, when you know your buddy's about to ask, this intersectional person, something that's like a little weird or kind of uncomfortable or, you know, whatever. Like, hey, I have this thing that I've been always want, always wanted to ask someone. You're like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Like, you already mm -hmm. know this is going to be terrible. Mm -hmm. That's your, like, if you are an ally and not just in name only, that's your moment to be like, hold on. Like, let's back this up for a second. Like, I don't know this. They, they want to ask something that feels weird to you makes me feel weird. Like, let's mm -hmm. stop the train there, have a conversation off on the side because I think you might be headed down a path that it just seems weird, you know? And I think that's sometimes your role just to chime in and say like, let's stop for a second. This seems really weird to me, or this is, seems like it's headed someplace weird. And you know, maybe it is or isn't, but I mean, that's like the space for people with any power in a situation to use their power to make things a little bit better. And that can mm -hmm. be just literally stopping the train. Yeah. I wish I saw more of that too. I think too many things get snowballing or no one wants to speak up or someone's like, yeah, I'm gonna like go ask Darnell these five five questions about blah blah blah, and you're like, stop, you know, like mm -hmm. say that, do something, like that's your job, I think, as oh, yeah. the legit, I don't know, accomplice in the scene is to actually do something. Yes, yeah, the bystander is is just as culpable as anyone else if they have the power, I suppose, to do something. Yeah, and even if that something literally is, hey, this seems weird to me. Like, at least saying that, you know, like, I think we, this is speaking to the white fragility team on the sideline here, who is like, I don't know what to say. I wasn't sure what to do. I wasn't sure. I was, you know, like the, that sort of cycling that then people do nothing because they're not sure. Like, if it mm -hmm. seems weird, just say, this seems weird. And yeah. then either you'll have a conversation or people will get weird and then it'll be very obvious. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. I know Khalid and I, um, probably you as well, have no problem stepping in, uh, speaking up. But also, I feel that I have nothing to lose except for myself. And if I don't speak up, then I'm not the person who I claim to be. Yeah, you uh, have some sense of self in this. Like, you actually know what matters to you as a person, mm -hmm. which, is un which is great and unfortunate the more people aren't so self-connected, you know, self-grounded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you mentioned... White fragility, I think it's a term coined by Robin D'Angelo, if I'm not mistaken. 
that's who I heard about it from. I'm not sure if she's the originator, but yeah. Okay. Okay. So we had a reverse racism episode has to be over a year ago. Mm. Um, and I think it was mentioned. Someone had said something like, oh, if white fragility exists and black fragility exists, it's like, no, you, you see, you see <laughs> black, black fragility is not a thing because big black in a white world sets a type of fragility that can only be met through combative thought. So whether I feel weak or not is not a subconscious thing and something I need to defend. I know that if I get in the wrong situation, I will be killed. The thing is, I don't go into a group of people, uh, you know, wearing certain regalia, uh, pointed hats. I don't go in that situation with the assumption that I'm going to make it out. White fragility, I go into a situation, I get pulled over by the police. He tells me I was speeding. I argue with him and I start reaching around for my insurance card. So it's, it's not a fragile state because I know exactly what could happen. It's a, it's a logical state of existing. And some people could say, well, if one thing exists and there has to be an antithesis to it. In a world of perfect dualities, sure. We don't live in a world of perfect dualities. Mm -hmm. The binary world is not a thing. I think Descartes lost that long battle a long Oh, yeah. Ago. Oh, yeah. Right along the time that he was uh, vivisecting his wife's dog. <laughs> probably right then. That was probably the moment <laughs> that that was over. Surely. So, once again, the same question. I ask you, to someone who is using this binary thought, this false dualism, yeah. Mm. Um, what is it? False dichotomy. There we go. How? Not even how. What do we do? Not how do we sort of heal the situation? How do we like sort of get them back to neutral? I don't think at this point it is our duty to take them back to neutral. I think we have to address what's happening. Tell them because, right, you know, as, as Ben Shapiro, one of the pundits of the other side would say, facts don't care about your feelings and opinions are personal. I'd say some opinions are so egregious to where I don't know if the person who says them even believes them. Hmm. I mean, yet we have hate crimes that are words of, it could be words that are spoken, right? So mm -hmm. Are hate crimes just an opinion then? Like that seems like that that reasoning to me loses traction pretty quickly. So that's maybe, you know, that's why you have these fun debates around yeah. how slippery is that at slope, right? Uh what I've the situation that makes me think of that I've encountered are um someone was telling me about their organization and they it was a fairly white organization. They're like, We need to engage in a diversity initiative. This is not okay. Like we've been cruising along autopilot here we are our uh, racial diversity is super limited we need to address that and so having a discussion within their organization about microaggressions and having people say i don't think microaggressions exist i don't think those are really a thing you know this is a white person saying this clearly and so the the leader in the situation who i was talking to later was just like what like like they couldn't you know so there was this sudden moment of like you don't think microaggressions exist yet 
this person, they had a person who was had spoken, you know, through the leadership. They actually it wasn't like all all white. There were people of color. The minority of the minority, you know, was present in this organization. And so um and they had spoken about microaggressions previously that, that they thought this existed, you know, that they were present within this organization, not that this existed. And so to have another member of the organization say like, yeah, I don't think that's a thing, just to negate that whole experience, right? So this is this leaders in this position where they are pretty sure this is actually really a thing, although they were also a white person. They're like, yeah, this happens. Meanwhile, other white person too is like, this isn't even a thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Meanwhile, person of color was like, I'm feeling this in this organization at this time. You know, here's some examples. You know, they were very clear with some examples of how this um, was present for them. Mm-hmm. And so the, I was talking with this leader later and they were like, well, what do I do? Like, how do I convince this person that this reality exists? Like essentially that, that they deny that this reality is even a thing, that microaggressions are a part of reality. They were like, no, that's all. I don't know what they said. Not real. And it was not... Uh, and yet they wanted everyone to stay in this organization, right? So this is like their other bias. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, they couldn't just like fire the one person. They wanted this, these people to kind of stay together and build this, you know, continue in this organization together. It was a long conversation is a short answer. <laughs> but how do you deal with someone who fundamentally denies someone else's reality, right? That fundamentally denies that that is a thing or even a problem or should even matter or should even... Mm-hmm. You know, they just can't comprehend it. And I don't know that there's, like, the best answers are really personal answers, I think, at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, talking with that mm-hmm. person one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. I have, like, a, like, here's your 12-step process for dealing with bias deniers. You know, like, I don't know yeah. what that is. I'm sure those are out there. You can Google that. Feel free to Google 12-step process for dealing with bias deniers but or uh, microaggression deniers. I'm sure wiser people than <laughs> I have created those, like, literally. So there's my plug for Google. But I think in the moment... They wanted to preserve a relationship. They knew that something was totally off in this relationship. And so they knew they had to t- go back and talk to this person. Mm-hmm. And so talking with them about how to have that conversation became, it was beautifully that this happened within a mastermind. So there, everyone is chiming in, right? Someone is like, hey, I think you should say, you know, I think you should address them like really specifically and try and figure out, like ask them what they mean. Like, and then someone else would be like, oh, I think you should ask them. You know, like they're kind of coming up with questions to ask the denier, right? Like, mm. so to try and draw the denier in a little bit more and to get more clarification around that. And um, I think they went away and they came back a couple weeks later and like, okay, well, they said race is never, a, they, the claim from this person was, well, I've had to work just as hard as anyone else. Why should we support anyone else that blah, blah, you know, like that doesn't look like that's not my same skin tone because I work really hard. You know, I feel like this is a, you probably have heard this kind of line Absolutely. of arguing before, right? So now they come back and they're like, well, how do I deal with this person who, uh, this white person who says they work just as hard as anyone else. No one else should be, have any privileges or be elevated or, you know, like they were a brat about it fundamentally in that conversation. It sounded like, and the, I mean, the next, there were lots of ideas that people offered. And I think to that relationship, I think they ended up asking them when their race had caused them problems in the past. Mm-hmm. And the white person is like, well, never, you know, like when has my race ever caused me problems? You know, like I think fundamentally they can get to a point of agreement. And I think that is where you sort of build these, if you want to maintain a relationship, like finding those points of agreement do, do matter. And you might not find very many of them. Like the, I don't know at the end of the day, if the, like the denier of all things actually, you know, they didn't, there wasn't this like sort of beautiful, like Hallmark Hall of Fame ending where they're like, my life has changed. And like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, I don't think that happened. But I do think, 
there could have a conversation that was really tangible and really poignant. And if nothing else, to be like this behavior right here is see is a microaggression. Stop doing it. You know, I think they could get down to either the specifics of like you saying this thing to this person, you acting in this way is not okay. And so they could work on the behavior level while at the same time working on the sort of mental level. And that's how they chose to engage with this person. Like, here's what I'm going to tell you the specific rules. And if you want to act this way, you're out of here. And if you don't, if you can like make changes to your behavior, like we can keep working with you if you're willing to grow and learn. If you're not willing to grow and learn, like they actually had to draw a line eventually and be like, this isn't the right organization for you. This isn't the right place for you because we can't, we're actually not going to support. We're not going to, what is it like the, like neutrality supports the oppressors, right? So we're not going to mm. remain neutral on this to support this sort of oppressive behavior, even though you have a lot of words around why you think it's okay. Like your words around why you think it's okay, don't make it okay still. And that's not how our organization wants to enact its values. And so if you want to be a part of this organization with these values, get on board with them. And if you don't, see ya. I think there was a lot more conversation that happened, but unfortunately, I don't know of the end of the day, you know, how that story went out. But it ended up being a very one-to-one -one conversation. And I've often found that once you start those conversations, one person will just be like, ugh, this is so much work and leave. Like the, the most fragile white person will bow out first, who is usually the person with the most biases. They're like, ugh, why are you in my grill about this all the time? Like, ugh, why are you like always talking to me about, ugh, you know, stuff that they don't want to talk about because they don't want to address or deal with it. Um, so they, I think they ended up self-selecting out of that organization now that I think about it. But I would have to go back and follow up with what happened in the end. But it is, it becomes very personal. If like, if you're going to fix someone's mindset, you know, if, if it's broken, if that's like too much of a bias to throw on that, or if you're going to engage with someone on this level that is really deeply held beliefs, you have to be willing to engage with them as a whole person and not just, well, believe something different, you know, that's never going to really solve anything or move things forward and have your bottom lines with like, actually you can think, you know, this is where it gets messy, right? You can think what you want, but here's how you have to act here. And, and microaggressions are this messy spot where like they are unconscious sometimes or subconscious or not quite consciously articulated. So if you actually are thinking in these like really focused biased ways, it will come out in your actions without your intending. And that's problematic. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I am really like impressed um, by the work that, you know, that your business is doing. Um, and you know the part that especially like looking at your website um the part that jumped out at me was the um you know work that was like rooted in in anti-racism and you know these kinds of things um that's really inspiring and motivating um additionally we have an after show um as this podcast comes to a close it's uh, in defense of time um it doesn't run as long as these as like the main podcast typically does um but we would love to continue having conversations with you if you'd like to join us for that. For sure. Can I wrap up this one by saying I have an anti-racist, anti-racist, anti-racism podcast or mm -hmm. mastermind starting in January. If people are interested, I would love to talk with them about if that will meet their needs. It'd be a good fit for them. I'm always down to talk. Absolutely. And how can they find it? How can they find it? The best is via my website. It's worksportlife.com. A little mm -hmm. slashy masterminds will take you right to the masterminds I have starting for different communities and different thought uh, goals in January. Okay, perfect. Well, that brings us to the close of In Defense of Humanity. Iggy, thank you so much for joining us, speaking thank about you. this. 
and everyone who likes in defense of time or anyone who's interested hop on over to patreon.com slash idoh ido and uh, check out how we continue this there Uh, until then have a great whatever time you're listening to this